You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hi, welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with uh, Gary Pisano, who is a professor at Harvard Business School and also the author of this book, Creative Construction. I thought it was a typo for a second. I thought it was Schumpeter's sequel. It's also The DNA of Sustained Innovation, which I think is trying to tackle a problem which is on everybody's mind, which is how to innovate at scale within a large organization. And I think when you mentioned that you were writing a book on innovation at large corporations, one of your VC friends said, it's going to be a short book. It's not a short book. Uh, In fact, I think it could be a whole lot longer if you were allowed by your publisher to elaborate on a lot of the themes. So welcome, Gary. Great to be here. I do wish the book was a sequel to Schumpeter, if it would only be that successful or have that lasting impact. If 60 years from now, people are reading it, it's changing a field. That would be indeed wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, Schumpeter's hypothesis is that the gales of destruction will typically come from you know new companies and uh, the old companies are, are going to die. And, you know, the analogy is in with organisms where, you know, your telomeres get shorter and, you know, senescence kicks in and it's an inevitable process that the, the old will be replaced by the young. But, you know, you're challenging that. And I think you're challenging it not just because Harvard has a huge business advising large companies and trying to help them to uh, stave off disruption, but also I think you, you sincerely, you have an approach which is very well researched and which you know, offers a way out for some of these companies. But before we jump into that, maybe tell us why is it that for most companies, they do tend to ossify and ultimately die off? You know, what is this phenomenon that we see so often? Yeah, it's tr- I mean, there's a general trend, right? As there's some organizations which have been around quite a long time and they do lose their verve. And I think Schumpeter had the observation, right? He said they get like old men, they die of old age. The difference is with us, with people, it's biologically driven. You talked about our telomeres get shorter and other things happen that's biological. And then we draw that analogy to organizations, but there's nothing natural about an organization. Organizations are completely human-created. They're human-created design, so they don't actually follow natural laws in some way. So if they're getting that way, it's because of what we do, not because there's some law of physics, a law of biology that says they have to be that way. So, But why does it tend to happen? You know, several factors. One is organizations get larger, they get more complex, there's more interconnected pieces. And when there's more interconnected pieces, any change gets harder to make because it involves other pieces. And so it can get exponentially more complex to engage in certain things. I think the other thing that happens is organizations build up capabilities and skills and complementary assets and like distribution and brand that become very powerful, but then they become an anchor. They feel like they have to continue to exploit those. They look for ways to exploit those, but it narrows down their focus. And then I, I think third, the, the other thing is culturally, they don't attract the right people. They don't attract people who are creative or risk-taking. They attract people who want the safety of a large company and sometimes a large bureaucracy. So folks complain about bureaucracy, but a lot of people love it. It's very comforting. And so it becomes hard to attract people who are creative or who are what more, you know, they want to take risks or they want to be a nonconformist. They're not going to go into an organization like that. So the cultures become kind of self-propagating, if you will. And what it takes is the organization itself can't change. It becomes maladapted. And then if the environment changes, then what what happens does is what happens in biology. Those organizations eventually die or become shadows of themselves. But I think if ex ante, if you didn't see this happen in front of your eyes, I don't think you'd have any reason to expect it. We all know that scale matters and you know economies of scale exist across whether it's marketing or packaging or manufacturing or you know R&D. We, we, we know that scale exists and we know that there are certain advantages to having the resources, not least the data and the ability to capture data that large companies have. So one would think that just as companies are good at saying, oh, well, you know, I'm selling more stuff on the West Coast than on the East Coast, uh, I need to adjust my distribution in accordance with that kind of local information. You know, if I've got a choice between investing in explore and and exploit, you know, I should just adjust my resources uh, according to which of these gives me the, the biggest benefit. And yet that's exactly what doesn't seem to happen. So what is it about this decision which makes it different from all the other decisions where you know scale is, is kind of a disadvantage as opposed to an advantage? 
Yeah. And, and as you rightly point out, it should be an advantage. There's lots of advantages of scale. And I have worked with a lot of small companies. I've served on boards of small companies and startup companies. And you dream of the resources you can have, the financial resources or other kinds of resources of larger companies. So they, they certainly are advantageous, but these other things get in the way. So I think one of the things that happens is there's not an explicit kind of process. And this is why I deal with strategy in the first part of the book. I mean, it's a strategic decision about how to innovate, not just innovation is a good thing, but how are we going to lay our chips into, say, the, the broad dichotomy of what's explore versus what's exploit. Now, I break that down also between technology and business model because you can get different kinds of innovation. But, but leaving that aside, there is an explicit decision you have to make about how are you allocating resources to those opportunities which are nearer in, but exploit what you're good at, exploit your existing business model, exploit your technological base, and those things which are laying the seeds for the future. And if you don't make that decision explicitly, the decision gets made for you, which is almost always the gravity of the business is such, the demands of the existing businesses are large enough to pull the resources in. So then by default, what you end up doing is just purely exploit purely what I call routine innovation, which leverages both the existing business model and the existing technology base. Yeah. And you talk about the strategy part, I think it's a great way to start. It really sets the stage for everything that follows. But in that part, you talk about the innovation portfolio, which you just referenced, which has to do with where you put your chips with respect to, to innovation, not just how much do you invest in innovation, but which types of, of innovation. And you know, you know, I guess a couple of questions here. The first one is a lot of companies are explicitly saying that they want to invest in innovation and they, and they have these innovation initiatives and they have their chief innovation officers and then they you know have their silicon valley you know tours which you know help pay my mortgage and they do a lot of maybe everyone wears hoodies and they do a bunch of stuff but it's not really strategic and so within this strategic portfolio of innovation is there a correlation between success in, in one quadrant versus another maybe i'm just speaking from the, the perspective of the university i'm in i'm in an environment where there doesn't seem to be great innovation in any of those four quadrants i mean are the ones that are good at, at the routine home field innovation also the ones that are good at the kind of outside uh, innovation are, are the ones that are good at the technological innovation also the ones that are good at the business model innovation or is it like a trade-off where you, you know everyone's on the frontier they're just on maybe the right or the wrong part of the frontier i think what ends up happening actually companies who get very good at that in my matrix the lower left hand corner the routine innovation which exploits your existing technology and existing business model they hone a set of capabilities for that. But the, actually, those are just the wrong capabilities for the other stuff. So often the companies are very good at routine innovation, but they can't do what I call radical innovation. There's disruptive innovation in architecture. They can't do it those types which require exploration of some type. And that's because they have the wrong processes. They have the wrong, no, they have the wrong processes. They have the wrong culture. So you go back to your question before about they have the strat, you know, they have an initiative. They say, let's do more of a, let's be more disruptive. So first thing that often fails is they're not very explicit about what they mean by that. So whenever companies ask me, like, we want to innovate, we have an innovation initiative, help us on it. First question I ask is, why do you want to innovate? And they're like, what do you mean, why do you want to? Of course, we're supposed to innovate. And it's like, no, but exactly why? Strategically, why? What are, what are you hoping to do with innovation? And that's a harder question because otherwise it's like innovation is a good thing, right? Just But it's like different things. Like, is there some untapped value in the market? Is there user needs which are unmet? What, what's the use case? But how are we thinking about the future, the competitive dynamics? So that's the first thing to get some sharpness and clarity, which is often lacking of the companies who say, we have a chief innovation officer, we're going to take tours, we're, we're going to wear hoodies. They miss that part of it. So they got to get sharper around the strategy behind innovation. But then the second part is once they even have that and they're allocating resources, they have to make sure they're capable of doing it. So they have to have the right kinds of innovation processes and systems that enable that. So a big mistake that gets made is they allocate the money and then they run everything through the same innovation system that they have honed beautifully for routine innovation and it doesn't work. And then, of course, the third piece, I think, is separate, which is they just don't have the culture for it. So they, they have to work on that's why the book is organized around strategy systems and culture. Yeah, maybe we can reemphasize what is strategy because I think you know when I teach my strategy class, I always start off the very first sentence is like, what is strategy? And most people don't really even know what that is. And I think you emphasize that, you know, strategy necessarily implies trade-offs. So I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, there are some companies that are just down below the frontier and they're just not innovating anywhere. But then there are other ones that yeah. actually are quite good. And I think you, you mentioned a story where the CEO got up in front of the entire company and said, you know, we're going to do all these bold initiatives and et cetera, and then passed the baton to the, to the R&D people. And, and they were like, yeah, you know, we're going to do phase three trials of this thing that you know, and, and, very incremental. Yeah. 
very disconnect between which type of innovation they were, they were putting their bets on. So ultimately, strategy comes down, I say, in the book, strategy is where you spend your money. So you don't tell me what your strategy is. Tell me where you're spending your money, and I'll tell you what your strategy really is. But you know, strategy is a commitment to a pattern of behavior. It's a pattern of behavior. And you don't always do the same thing. And I, I use the analogy in the book. If you say your strategy for your Saturday morning tennis game is you know hit to Greg's backhand, it doesn't mean I hit to Greg's backhand every stroke, but it means I'm going to be looking for those opportunities. That's the pattern. And so an innovation strategy is a pattern of commitment to certain types of innovation that you're going to pursue and a, a bias toward, toward a type and a priority. But with that then comes the resource allocation. So we're going to be tending to put our money into this pile more than this pile. That's really what, for me, is the essence of it. Yeah. So the best way to understand a company's strategy is not necessarily to listen to their mission statements, but to see where they're putting them. It's kind of like you know, reverse engineering the uh, optimization function for an animal or for a human, right? Yeah, that's exactly. You just I do a lot of strategy consulting for organizations. They start telling me the strategy, they take out these 80 point PowerPoint decks and and I'm like, just show me your budget, show me your capital allocation, show me the projects, tell me about the pro- where you're spending your money. And it is amazing the number of times they're just not connected. They're spending their money on things. And this example I gave in the book was an early one in my career, but I'm reminded of it all the time and I've just seen it play out where there was an intent per se, a statement about how they wanted to compete, in this case, really do pretty transformative things. And these were medical devices, transformative medical devices. There was huge opportunities in the market, just huge. The CEO kind of saw it and believed they should be doing it. And they were also facing a lot of cost competition. So he rightly recognized they didn't want to compete on cost and said, we want to do some really big things and do some transform. We want to transform, et cetera, et cetera. The R&D budget was oriented toward all kind of very, not even next generation, incremental refinements of what they were doing was building out line extensions. It was like, it was, you know, after the CEO speech, you're expecting a lion and what you saw was a mouse. This reminds me, I, I began my teaching career in finance and then you know, moved over to strategy. And and this may be going further into the book than and I was planning, but towards the end of the book, you talk a lot about kind of uh, financial metrics and the promise and peril of financial metrics. And most people in the world of innovation are very critical and dismissive of the things that we, we teach in finance, right? Whether it's, you know, NPV, ROI, IRR, you know, all that kind of stuff. And yet, you know, organizations cling to them. And I think your argument is that it's wrong to completely dismiss these things and just throw darts at the wall. But these things can be misapplied. And even if you move to something a little more sophisticated, like real options, it can definitely hamper your, your innovation. Can you talk a little bit about like, don't we need some kind of metric to figure out, again, on, on the margin, what's our ROI associated with these different types of investments? You need some way, a systematic way to, to think through what your options are. And so my view on these analytical tools, so first of all, for things like routine innovation, the traditional financial tools work beautifully and they, they work really well. I mean, you can calculate, you take your pick of which particular technique you want to use and how fancy you want to get. But if you're proposing a next generation of something you have been doing before. So when let's think about it, when Apple thinks about the next generation of an iPhone or two or three generations down the line, Lots of the questions you'd ask about whether that's worthwhile and what should be included, you can answer those questions. You have data. How, how many do we think we're going to sell? I think Apple has a pretty good idea how many they're going to sell. Roughly, what's the price where consumers will pay? I think Apple's got a pretty good idea that you know, the technology, all the issues, what's it going to cost to manufacture? I think Apple understand, knows that within pennies, probably. So there's not a lot of uncertainty. And so they can put together and do a, a fairly, I'm sure, a pretty good financial analysis to say it's worth doing this, it's worth this price, it's worth these features. So the analytical tools are beautiful there. As you start moving out to where the markets are, are less certain or may not even exist at the point where you're starting to think about something or you're really trying to change the nature of the market. Then a lot of the questions you'd ask, you may not even know all the questions, but a lot of things you'd need to know to do any kind of financial analysis, you just don't know. I mean, it's not even that you can't even guess, you just don't even know what you don't know and you don't know the parameters. But you say, well, what's the alternative then? Do you just put your finger up and, and say, I feel like this is a good one or you know, look at the tea leaves or the, see how the stars are aligning? So there, I think the modeling process of doing something, a financial, let me just call it an analytic, some kind of analytic, whether it includes financial analysis or analysis of the technology, there's an analytic process you go through. But the goal there is the answer is kind of less interesting than, than what you learned the way of doing it. So you think about the analytic as a process for structuring your thinking in a logical way and a rigorous way to invite discussion and to invite exploration that is going to help the senior leaders make a better judgment. And at the end of the day, it's judgment. 
And that's all these things do is, is, and that's what leaders do. They make judgment calls and, but they want to make good judgment calls and they want to make sure they're, they're not being biased. They want to make sure they're asking all the right questions. And so a good rigorous process, including having some analytics helps you where companies fall into the trap, where leaders fall into a trap is at some point, the analytic they're using spits out a number, 22.2% ROI, and they start to take that number seriously. And then they start saying, 22% is bigger than 15%. So I like 22%. So let's do the 22, not the 15 and not recognize, wait a minute, that wasn't the purpose. Those numbers are probably not very accurate anyway, but let's work through why is 122%. And, and that's an odd assumption. Why are we making that assumption? Maybe we could do something different. So you want to be structured and disciplined in your method, but don't necessarily take the answer seriously and certainly don't be simplistic in choosing the metric, again, for things that are outside the routine quadrant. Yeah, I think the, the mistake that uh, we make in finance is that we think that we have the central clearinghouse for evaluating all projects, when in fact, I think the toolbox that MidFinance offers is really a set of frameworks that have to be added to you know, a portfolio of frameworks within you know, the strategic toolbox. Absolutely. And and the opposite mistake gets made, I think, by people who criticize those who say, don't use them at all. Don't use any method. You know, this is a judgment call. And, and I think that's equally problematic. So I think what I've tried to advocate is something I won't say in between, but it's just different about it, which is use the analytic as a way to guide your thinking. It's a process. It's the process that matters, not of the analysis, not the product of the analysis. Now, one of the interesting things I thought you, you brought up was this whole idea of kind of an industry dematuring. You know, we're trying to figure out what industry is sexy, what industry to go into. You know, a lot of my students are always like, hey, what should I get into? I should get into tech. And I'm like, oh, well, that doesn't even mean anything. You know, everything's tech. But, you know, I remember students would be like, freight forwarding. Oh, my God, that's really boring. I'm like, wait, have you heard of Flexport? You know, like this is a super sexy industry, right? And so you mentioned that a lot of investors, they don't have any faith in managers. They want them to kind of regurgitate all the cash flow so that they can go around and invest in, in the hot new startup. And you pose this question, like, how do you know when the party is over? Mm. How do you know when you've run your course and it's time to start doing some some estate planning, right? I mean, I, I think about this when companies come to me, they're like, you know, how do we innovate? And I'm like, you know what? In your case, you might just want to, you know, just start giving your, your money to your grandkids and, and sailing off into the sunset. But you say that oftentimes when it looks like the it's time to go off on the ice. There's actually some juice left in the lemon. Could, could you talk a bit about that framework? Yeah. And that's in chapter five of the book. And it's about, it's a create. So one of the things I, I really detest management cliches because they get boring, but they're also, they're short. You have some awesome two by twos. I just have to say. You know, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But they're not cliche. And so what I do is I try to tackle the cliches. I guess I do a lot of the manager. I do a lot of two by twos. We're forced to do two by twos because you can only see in two dimensions. <laughs> you know, it's like, but so all problems are, you know, it's pick the two most important dimensions of the problem. It's not a bad exercise. You know, two by twos are, are actually a good exercise because they force you to really think about what are the two dimensions which are most important and there's more, but say, well, what are the most important two? But I don't like management cliches because they short circuit thinking. And the one that I find particularly offensive is the eat your own lunch before somebody else does. A number of times I've heard that said at meetings. And I say, if you're on the lifeboat and your arm is the dinner, you know, make sure you get your share. Yeah, absolutely right. So what happens, the view there is, gosh, when faced with a potential disruption, you're supposed to jump all over it. Don't be afraid to kill your own business so you can do another one. And I said, well, hold on, stop. Let's. That's predicated on a couple of assumptions. First of all, it's actually predicated on that you actually know what's going to happen. And the world is just replete. And I give lots of examples in the book of just uh, where we really miss technological trends badly. And so the idea of jumping from one to the other is in, in retrospect – is easy to see, but that's not how managers live. They live in prospect. So there may be a need to hedge things to understand whether you jump or not. But there's also the idea that whatever's new is coming along is actually as profitable or more profitable. And I use the example of digital, which, you know, digital photography, obviously it over it got rid of the film market. Digital photography is not a particularly profitable business for anybody. It's it's a commodity business. So what happened is the party ended. It was there was a great party in film because there was a scale economies brand you could be Kodak and have and or Polaroid and have these high margins. But the party ended because of the change in the technology. And there's not a lot you can do about it. sometimes if the party ends like that, there's not a lot you can do about it. And that's quite a part of the point I make about so sometimes it's not the eat your own lunch because the next thing you can go to is not very interesting. So you might at times be forced to do what I call a defend and extend. Now, by the way, I think at the extreme, you're right. 
which is there may be times where you just say, look, this is time to disgorge the cash to the investors and everybody go home and do, do you know, make better investments with the money. Don't let us, we can't do anything with this business. There's no extra value add to what we're and you know, we're just acting like uh mutual fund managers at this point. And there's other mutual fund managers who are better. So we shouldn't do that. But I think, you know, but there are times where you say, actually, the business has got some ways to go. We can defend and extend. It's not gonna be forever. This is not, you know, the next 50 years. But maybe the next 10 years for this business could be really good in the tail of it. Now, and sometimes there's an opportunity for something to demature because we think it's mature and somebody gets a new twist on it and it's suddenly back. It is actually interesting. I, I actually do follow photography. I'm an avid photographer. I, and you're going to laugh, but I'm actually a film photographer. I actually do film. So the only digital camera I have is the, the one that's used to broadcast me that's on top of my camera, my Sony Alpha. I occasionally take that out. But I have old camera. Do you have a dark room in your house? I'm building one. That's a, for a discussion between me and my wife. <laughs> that's a, we're, we're having some renovation done. So there's a room that's going to open. The film's getting expensive, right? Like, turn, like I've got my dibs on what particular, what I think used to be the laundry room. Film <laughs> so, must be a luxury item now. If I was thinking of buying a turntable recently, and I couldn't believe how expensive they are. Yeah, but the prices are high. You make a lot of money in film. I buy it. I've got a refrigerator full of film. And if I were, wouldn't have to I could show you my cameras there. But I, I have two, I have a 40-year-old 35-millimeter camera and a 30-year-old medium format camera. And I'm actually thinking of buying um, a used large format camera, like a four by five with a negative where you get a sheet, a negative. And, I, and why do I do it that way? Because I just like it aesthetically. I spend all my time, I love photography. I've never really gotten into digital. I also spend so much time staring into a computer that for fun, I, I like the analog and I like developing film and I like printing and I'm, I now get them printed elsewhere because I, I don't have the dark room. But I've actually come to learn that there's actually been quite a resurgence in film, sorry? I'm still analog on the books. I'm I'm resisting the Kindle. Yeah, yeah, I know. There's certain things where analog is good because we we're beating up our eyes. I love dig- digital stuff; is great, but it is amazing. There's a, quite a tale, and I would say is that a huge business now? But there are ways. There, there, there's a tail in that film. It's, it hasn't declined as quickly as we thought. Some parts of that business didn't decline. They were small anyway to start with, but there are these niches and there are these things in my former colleague at Harvard, Dan Snow, who's also poor. He's a Berkeley grad, came out of the same PhD program I came out of. Dan Snow's done some wonderful work on this idea of last gasps and thinking about what causes these long tails to occur and shows that actually, you know, there is many technologies have a long tail. And I, I think he's right. I mean, his evidence is convincing and it, it's, so there are times you have to look for that. So it, it's a strategic decision. Are we going to try to defend and extend? Are we bailing here? Or is it really a time to move over and leverage what we're doing in one business and go into go into another and adopt their technology? And if you look at the film, business, some, camp, some companies did. I mean, companies like Nikon have done very well. They still they make one film camera, I think. But by and large, they've done extremely well in digital. They transitioned over. They jumped all over it. They've maintained their high end and Canon as well. I mean, they, they're strategic choices to be made. You also mentioned Fuji, right? Which has yeah. made a very different change, which is really more about you know internal capabilities, yeah. presumably resources. Yeah, and went into specialty coatings and things like that, where they leveraged. I, as you know from my previous writings, that I think of companies as these bundles of resources and capabilities. That's what organizations have. They build those up, and the strategic problem is how to deploy them and sometimes redeploy them. And when things change in a broad way, thinking about do you redeploy out? How do these play in other businesses, and can you find places where they play. Now, sometimes they don't. I mean, if you were a typewriter manufacturer and word processors came along, there may have been nothing special about being a typewriter manufacturer that would have given you an advantage in some other industry. And 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 sometimes the game is over. Rem- I always talk about Remington. You're basically, your core capability is assembling electronics with interchangeable parts, right? If they're right. relatively easy transition there to razors and, and other small appliances. But then you also talk about uh, situations where you know, instead of playing in a field that's closer to home, these large companies wind up going into things that, that are very different, right? The IBM, Monsanto, Bell Labs, Honda, right? The, I've actually used the, the Honda example in, in class and how they went from generators to, to motorcycles to automobiles because their capabilities were all about internal combustion. And then now you've got EVs. What does Honda have to, to bring into the EV space? I mean, they've, they've got virtually- Well, it, but even more so, I mean, the best Honda examples I wrote a case on is they do light jets. And I teach that case. I love it. So I'm teaching it. I'm teaching it in two days. So I'm thinking about it a lot. I've taught that they, this was a, a program they created years ago. And the question is, what do they, what do they have to bring to the party here? And it was part of, in some sense, not what they could bring to the party that they already had. It was about part of an investment in building some new capabilities that they never had before, that they were just exploring. This is actually pure exploration where you say, let's go out as an organization 
and build some new capabilities and then take an op- and as a building an option for a future. And so it wasn't like they spent a ton of money in aircraft up front. They were doing some exploratory work in that space and then came up with a really interesting design, which then said there's a big option here where we can go forward. There are cases where organizations, and I do think of organizations, the problem, you have to keep building new capabilities. So the idea of stick to your knitting or stick to your core competence is a very static view of the world that says you have a set of capabilities and all you're supposed to do is find places to exploit them. But we know that organizations don't do that. Organizations are learning constantly and should be, and they build new capabilities. And part of that process is how I think organizations grow and thrive and change who they are, which is they consciously invested in new things. And the art there, and it's challenging, is to figure out how far can you stretch where you go a bridge too far. And there's just nothing that you can do, particularly what you can't do anything there versus something where you can invest and learn and build a strong competence in. And, and it's adjacent to what you're good at currently. Yeah. So, I mean, when I used to teach finance, I would say that every company is in the business of selling securities. Forward, you're selling securities. If you're Philip Morris, you're selling securities. If you're Apple, you're selling securities. And then all this other stuff is just to give your securities value. You know, when you look at it from the perspective of strategy, every company is in the business of innovation, right? That's their their main output. That's what they're producing. And you caution against using manufacturing as the appropriate analogy, but you have this, you have this kind of value chain of innovation, which which goes from you know search to synthesis to selection. You know, each one of those has to be done right in order for the company to be innovative. And if you have great search capabilities, but you lack the capacity to synthesize or to select, then it's kind of in vain. In fact, I've talked to a lot of companies where they they go through these innovation kind of workshops and all of a sudden everybody has ideas and everybody's throwing up ideas and they got post-it notes and everything. And then they all just kind of at at the next stage. So could we start maybe with that that part, maybe the search part? How does a company invest in kind of searching for what these new ideas are? Yeah, I think that's a great point. So when you ask companies, how do you find new ideas? They'll say things like, Oh, we get ideas from everywhere. We're open. Our eyes are open. Our ears are open. Everything. And and then as you kind of go back and look, you realize actually not. You actually had a few channels. And the question is, those may be the perfect appropriate channels, but you should be choosing. So because a lot of times what it is is there's a default. It's like our biggest customers or our our key opinion leaders, and we get biased. We get biased input, and so we we're. We think we're looking, we think we have this really big funnel, but in fact, we don't. We have a straw. So that's where we get our ideas from. Uh, and so part of it you do is you step back and say, what is it that, let, like, how do we actually search? And let's be conscious about it. And you know, I don't think there's ever a simple right answer in all contexts, but in general, it, it's how do you widen the, the source of ideas? Because the first step really is to get a broad palette. If things are not on your radar screen, they don't stand a chance. So how do you open yourself up to folks you've never talked to before, whether that's partnerships, whether it's just folks, events you go to, whatever it is. And sometimes as well, using people within your organization. It's it's always amazing to me how few companies actually use their sales forces to generate information about things. I mean, the people on the front lines are often the first one to see opportunities. They're talking to customers, they're out in the field, they see what's selling, not selling. They, they have really rich information. And you know that's just a good example of making sure you have ways in which you can get the ideas on your on your radar screen. I mean, I think in general, the kind of broader is better. That is, get a, really be much more diverse in terms of where you get ideas from. Not within an existing business. To do routine innovation, you generally know where those ideas come from. And again, it's who are the big customers? Who are the key suppliers? Where's the supplier roadmap going? Where's the customer roadmap going? What it, we have channels there to do it. It's when you have to start to get outside that. Organizations often don't even see opportunities because they're just not talking to people. Uh, they're not talking to the kind of, they're only talking to the current customers, not future customers. They're not talking to people in other businesses or other industries. The talent they're bringing into the organization is often very limited. They're not bringing people from outside the industry who can bring completely new perspectives to the to the problem. And so I think with search, it's how do you get that variety? Yeah, I think the way I like it, I think of organizations that are complaint-driven versus idea-driven. And if they're complaint-driven, you know, they're kind of like the IT department just waiting for chits to, you know, requests to come over the transom. And if you get enough complaints from your customers about a problem, then, you know, you might fix it. Or if, And at the higher levels of the organization, the senior leaders, they get their ideas from the people they're surrounded by. And rather than intentionally surrounding themselves by the people who they think are most likely to generate the ideas. So you need to have an active search strategy as opposed to sort of a passive. Absolutely. That's exactly the right way to put it. If it's passive, if you just sort of do it by default, what you're always doing, you're going to get the same ideas. And you know, an analogy I use is if the holiday dinner party, if you have the same relatives over 
every year, Thanksgiving or, or, or Christmas or the other holidays, and you have the same relatives over every year. If you ever notice, you have the same conversation every year. It's pretty damn boring. And that's what happens in organizations. They're basically talking to the same people or the same types of people. So it's, you don't learn anything new. But when you start having different folks, different kinds of players, you, you spark. So wait a minute, we never thought of that. That's new. So that's, that's a new trend. That's a new thing. Yeah, and you mentioned a great example where you um, more or less, you know, forced <laughs> to have a um, discussion with someone from the engineering school, and, and it was very fruitful. And I think that specialization—we'll talk about synthesis in a bit—but you know, specialization and the reports and the meetings and the, the deliverables and you know, responding to the emails and that kind of stuff, which occupies the time of most people, it mitigates against this kind of, of exploration because it's not. Think about exploration; it's subject to arrows paradox, right? You don't know the value of the exploration before you do it. Now, is there a way to know, like, okay, I need to target, I need to target, you know, specific sources of information, and I need to evaluate their the likelihood that they're going to be useful ahead of time? No, I don't think you do know. An example I tell is when we we were running an event, the Harvard Business School and the School of Engineering at Harvard were running a some joint conference, and so we were paired up with a senior colleague from the. Uh, engineering school I had met and you sit down and you meet. So what do you work on? He said, I work on artificial intelligence. So tell me all what's going on there. And I, you know, we had this great conversation. He asked me what I was working on. And we started to talk back before. And we, we had this great conversation, which we'd kept up and there was quite a bit of, of learning. And it just opened my eyes to some of the things which were going on in the world of artificial intelligence, you know, several years ago. And, and the relationship to what I was doing, the connection to what I was actually doing in management stuff was, you know, opened my eyes. It was actually quite, and, and by the way, he, it opened his eyes to what was going on in the world of management that was relevant to artificial intelligence. It's not like I was going to do artificial intelligence research. That's, he's a world expert. They're, they're world experts in that. But suddenly you start to see questions about, in this case, I was looking at organizational learning and then how does machine learning complement that or replace that. So I would have not known in prospect whether that was a good investment of my time or not. So I think you have to kind of have to do a bunch of these at risk. You have to take a few flyers. I don't think you can get around the, this is a good one. I think if you try to find people who are really smart and interesting and just spend a little time with them, you know, some of those are going to be really interesting conversations, but they're not probably going to help you. But but some of them will be, will lead somewhere. Some of them will trigger something. So I think you have to be a little bit, I think you're going to have to be a little, uh, a little less disciplined on the trying to calculate the ROI of your time on some of these kind of explorations that you do. Well, I mean, if you had been on a panel with someone, a Latin professor, it might have been you know, a little bit less useful. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And there's, you know, there's, I do work on technology. So meeting with somebody from the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences or biologists, I mean, I do try to connect with scientists a lot because I do work related to that. But you're absolutely right. I, I don't, on the other hand, I, you know, some of the work I've been doing recently on corporate cultures, I really, I'd love to talk to somebody from religious studies because I actually think there's a lot about how corporate cultures are built and the similarity to how religions build followings. So I could use some help there. So I will, I should try to find somebody from our divinity school or somebody who's an expert on religious studies. So sometimes there's things which are really far afield. You think they're far afield, but they're more connected. But you're right. You know, maybe Latin is, you just don't know. <laughs> who knows? Maybe I'll have a converse, great conversation with a Latin professor who will open my eyes and that would be terrific. So some of this is the serendipity of just get out. There. I don't think you can predict. You have to be out there and about. You can't do it all the time because otherwise you wouldn't get anything done. But just find a certain amount of time to get out there and just say, let me force myself into these contexts where I don't know what's going on. I don't know the field. And I just want to try to open my eyes a little bit. And it's hard because we're all busy, but I think it's I think it's worthwhile cumulatively. I don't think you can calculate a positive rate of return on the particular meeting because you just don't know. So you offer a couple of, I think, guide some sort of recommendations for leaders and organizations to help people get outside their home court. And, you know, maybe we can walk through those. Some of them bleed into your recommendations for the next step, which has to do with uh, synthesis. And so maybe first distinguish between search and synthesis, and then talk a little bit about some of these initiatives that you can put in place. You know, I, I teach a course on the workplace. And, and one of the things that we talk about is how do you design the physical environment so as to, you know, actually facilitate these serendipitous in encounters. And, you know, of course, online, it's a little bit harder, but, but maybe talk about what's the difference between kind of search and synthesis, and then uh, how can you jumpstart some of these, these initiatives? Yeah, and I think about the difference between search and synthesis is search is just getting the ideas, get the palette. You need a broad palette. Synthesis is now you're starting to connect, you're starting to paint together, you're starting to mix the paints and think which ones are cooler. But if you don't have a broad palette, there's nothing to mix. So how do you broaden the palette of ideas? And this is, I mean, there's a few things. I think, you know, you sort of have to, got to have to force them. So sometimes it's, and they can be in a variety of ways for organizations. Some of the ways, just who you hire, just looking at the backgrounds of the people you hire. Are you hiring a certain type? or you broaden and getting people from outside your industry helps a lot. A lot of really good leaders do this. They themselves figure out ways to just physically go out and meet with people 
from different places at different types of organizations and have conversations. I think you can, you almost have to structure this type of thing to bring in people who can expose the group to different kinds of ideas that where they, again, they wouldn't have thought of any relevance. So one way sometimes I see organizations do it is they do some trips. They don't go to people in their industry. They go to something totally outside their industry. How do they do it in this business? How do they do that? And it's who do we meet? What's the connection? It's, it's the equivalent of my having a conversation with a, you know, an engineering professor uh, who's an expert in artificial intelligence. So I think those are kind of part of the ways of doing it. The distinction with, and sometimes your partnerships can do it. You can certainly form partnerships with organizations. I think the synthesis is, okay, you got a lot of different ideas you're getting. You have sources of ideas. You've got ideas coming in. You actually need people who can really bridge those gaps. And you need talented people to do it, technically talented people who become architects, if you will, of the vision of a technology and who could say, aha, this insight from field A and this insight from very different field B is this is something really powerful that nobody's thought about. I mean, it's intellectual arbitrage, you know, of bringing an idea from one field over to another or combining ideas in ways. And I think so much of that's what innovation is. And going back to Schumpeter, he talked about innovation is recombinations. And it's that I think is huge. But to get that to happen, again, you need some mechanisms inside the organization to bring those ideas together and get and and you need you actually need people who do it and they really do have to be intellectually like an architect who can see all the pieces that's what I think a good architect when they're designing something they they understand the components they understand how it all comes together and they can see ways in which new things can come together they can recognize the patterns and they can't be fluent in every language because there's so many different things but they're fluent enough they have a familiarity enough to be able to draw things together and gain insight. And that's what a lot of great innovators do. They kind of orchestrate that, but they're not just project managers for sure. They are actually, they have an intellectual vision of what, what is supposed to happen. And so you really need, you need those people. You need to find them. They're hard to find. They're hard to get. And you got to keep them and you got to value them and you got to promote them. And they're, they should be some of those powerful people in your organization. Yeah. How does one within the organization reward people who do that? Because intellectual arbitrage is not is not a position. You mentioned how destructive silo-like business units can be. I mean, hey, the title of this podcast is Unsiloed. And, you know, in business organizations, just like in academia, these impermeable boundaries can, and this turf claiming and immune systems can make it difficult. And you talk about, you know, Sony versus Apple and, and how silos are frowned on in the Apple organization relative to Sony. Can you, can you talk a bit about how do these silos emerge? Why do they exist? And then how do they ultimately become? Yeah. And so let's start with why they exist and, and the good sense. So why do we create them? We don't create them because they're dysfunctional organizations. We create them because they have a job to do. What does a silo do? It gets resources focused around, say, a particular type of market, a particular type of customer. And we say, you need to focus on this market, solve this type of customer's need with these type of products. And we need you to focus on that. And it's just like in, you know, the military say, look, some, some, we have to have ground forces. We have to have air forces. We have to have naval forces. We got different jobs to do. We're going to focus them. So that's helpful. And you need specialized expertise. What happens though is sometimes these need to coordinate or sometimes the really interesting stuff comes at the margin, comes at the scene where things spill over into each other. In fact, think about the military today, just to push the analogy a little farther. I mean, the Navy is a huge amount of airplanes in the Navy. It is The carriers are the most important part of the US Navy today, I think. Maybe the nuclear subs as well. Looking at it, carriers and are a really important part of our Navy, but those have airplanes, right? So it's this cross connection. You know, in a normal hierarchy, it's kind of the central command that does all the kind of coordination across the different silos, right? Yeah. So, but you're emphasizing that there needs to be more arbitrage happening at lower levels in the organization. Yeah. And so you, how do you break it down at the lower level? How do you get people of ideas who can move across? And that's, I think you need to build mechanisms to do that. And you need people who, you, sometimes you build different groups. So sometimes that's what some centralized groups do. We've poo-pooed the idea of centralized R&D groups, but centralized R&D groups can do that. They're outside the silo. Their job is to pull things together, find links, build up new stuff. And so I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing to have a centralized R&D group. It's not connected to a market that you're in, but that's exactly the point. So that's one way to do it. I also think though, you think like, who are these people? You need to be able to have folks who, it's not a job titled intellectual arbitrage, but you can have people who are project leaders, program leaders, innovate. If you think about it in the movie industry, there's people who are called producers. Their job is to produce a film. They come up with the idea, they work, they hire directors, they build the franchise. Why not do the same thing in businesses where you say, look, your job is you're the equivalent of the producer. 
you conceptualize, you think it through, you build a team around you and execute it. We don't do it that way. And that could be across the silo. It could be some other group and you you have to fund them separately and let them do their thing. And so I don't think there's anything we sometimes allow politics to get in the way of it. Sometimes it's, you know, you have to have a group that's building something up and they need resources of, of an existing division. But I think there's generally ways to work around that if you work at it. And so, I mean, that's where you get these people. They're, they're building them up outside the silos. These are people who are building new groups or or you're doing it virtually where you're putting together virtual teams of people who are who are starting something. I tell the story in the book about Amazon Web Services. I wrote a case on Amazon Web Services. It's, I think it's, as far as I know, it's the only field-based case on Amazon because they're a pretty secretive organization, but we were, we were pretty fortunate. And, uh, well, I guess Andy. I guess yeah, Andy was. We we interviewed Andy. He was in the case. I mean, we he was very helpful, and he was a young guy. That was this was like two thousand six or so, two thousand seven, and he, you know that program got started, and that, that emerges almost by accident, if you will. There's just some experimentation going on in the retail group about allowing kind of third parties to manipulate the way the information is presented. They kind of run this experiment and they get this a lot of feedback. Wow, people really want to use the platform for other things and build applications on top. And this gets them thinking more broadly. And then they start this little project team. So it doesn't, they pulled from different parts of the organization and they pulled a team and Jassy was heading it up and then they grew it. And then of course it became a division. Then they commercialized and it got, it becomes its own, probably its own style, but it really grew up then into something different. You know, that was a good example of a kind of virtual, almost starts as a small team that you pull together and autonomous and gets different pieces and you go and you can have that rather than saying, does it fit into retail or does it fit into this group? No, because it may not fit into any one of those groups. And and sometimes when you're doing new things, you're building new businesses, they get built up out of, by definition, they're not going to fit in any of the silos. Yeah. And you mentioned also DARPA and this idea of, I don't think you specifically mentioned, but the two pizza team concept and the agile versus waterfall. And I think Amazon is really a model for, for all of us. All of us are, you know, trying to figure out how does Amazon scale its innovation. But, you know, when you look at, say, university, you know, the faculty groups at, at most business schools haven't changed in 50 years. I mean, we still have, you know, marketing and operations and, and finance and, and accounting. And, you know, the meaning has changed over time. Like our public policy group used to be an industrial relations group. And the name of our OB group has changed over time. But academia seems to be an area where we don't see those kind of small team. We, we see them kind of grafted on top. You, you, you're very skeptical of kind of a matrix organization as sort of a halfway house between the old form and a new form of organization. What do you need to do to actually make that transition to kind of team-based soft structure type organization that you reference? So I am against it. In general, I think matrices can wind up being the worst of all worlds. They're compromised and they're almost themselves become a hard structure that stops things where this is about getting, pulling people together, giving them accountability and responsibility to go do something and you pull them out of a group. They can have, they may have to go back in or what they create may have to get plugged back into a main group, but it's that small flexibility that they do. I don't think there's anything too magical about doing it. There are challenges of doing it, which is you pull this group out and are they, how autonomous are they? What are the rules? How long is this going to go for? Is it permanent? I think you need, they need a roadmap. I've seen organizations do this kind of thing and they create something great, but then there's no place for it to go because they haven't thought about the next strategy. Is it a new division they're creating? Is it going back into this division? How is it working? And then depending on the corporate culture, people may be afraid to join these groups. They say, oh, I'm going to lose my job in my main division. So what you need is a pretty active internal labor market for people to be reassigned. And what you need people who are not asking that question, who know they're they're good enough where the company's going to want to keep them. And if the company doesn't want to keep them, they're like, I'm just going to get a better job somewhere else. So if you have a bunch of people who are afraid to lose their jobs, you're not going to be innovative. People talk about startups. Why are startups innovative? Startups are innovative because they attract a bunch of people who don't care about losing their jobs. Because most people who join a startup lose their job because most startups fail. When the company fails, you lose your job. They stop paying you. <laughs> and you got to go look for another job. So by definition, it attracts people who are like, kind of risk-taking. And they're like, I just go do it. I really want to do this. I'm excited about doing this. But No pension plan at the startup. There's no pension plan. But if you get people... So this is one of the problems in larger companies that I, that I talk about, and it gets to the culture stuff, which is they say, we want to emulate a startup, but they're not really emulating a startup. And they have a culture. People say, no, no, but I, you know, what's my career? Like, I'm in this division. If you're going to ask me, well, I'll do this thing. Do I have a guarantee back? And what you want are people who say... Yeah, this sounds fantastic to do it. And and if it works, it'll be ter- I really want to do it. And if it works, I want to be rewarded. Most people don't need to become fabulously rich. They just want to be rewarded. And if it fails, they feel good enough where it's like, you wouldn't fire me because I'm really good. And, and, and if you do want to get rid of me because the project failed, the hell with you. I'm going to go get a better job somewhere else. That's what you need. You need. And that's a different attitude. 
I, I think part of it is getting people who, who are willing to work in these sort of side groups. You know, you raise a great question about universities and the challenges. I do worry a lot about, you know, I, I think at universities, we have to stop pretending that society owes us a living. <laughs> that society, I think, you know, no university has, quote unquote, the right to exist. It has to earn that. It has to earn it every year. And it, it's got to be able to attract students. It's got to be able to do the, a good job, a really good job. Society puts a lot of resources into education. Our students, if you're in a business school, take a couple of years away. Uh, so that's costly just there alone, let alone the tuition they put in. And alumni donate money. All of this, they, the state of California, state puts in money. I think we need to recognize that we better innovate, change the way we do things to be more reflective of, of the really important issues that we need to prepare people for. So I, I don't like the silos that have been created in business schools. I, you're absolutely right. We created these definitions of things you know, a long time ago, and we hire people into those groups. And yet most of the interesting problems have nothing to do with that. And you know, we need to be, I think we should all be rethinking what we do. And I, it's certainly something I push very hard in my own institution for rethinking those flows and and at least getting people in multiple departments across new departments and allow it to be messier than just, you know, we have to have these silos. And nobody likes messiness, but you know what? The organizational structures, which are a little messy, may be a little more reflective of the messiness of the world. We left to last the issue of culture. You already talked about it. You know, in your book, you talk about kind of strategy systems and culture, and some people might be misled into thinking that you implement these things sequentially, but it seems like these things feed on each other. And if you try to have a culture that's innovative, without the systems, then the culture will ultimately revert back to its old form and, and vice versa. You know, when you're talking about the software of the organization, not just the, the hardware, what, what are the hard parts? What, what is it that leaders have to do? You offer a laundry list of, of things. You know, where are the where have you seen the leaders fail, fail the most? Is it which piece of the culture tends to be the hardest one for leaders who pursue innovation to implement? So I'm going to clarify. I don't think I offer a laundry list. I think it's a very short kind of, it's a paradox, right? Because it's actually the things which we get wrong about innovative cause. Let me be really clear. I think for years, what's been taught in business schools and what's been preached and written about and all the gurus have talked about it, totally wrong. They emphasize all the wonderful things about innovative cultures like tolerance for failure, willingness to experiment, collaboration, psychological safety, empowerment, blah, blah, blah all these things that everybody loves and everybody wants to do. But what they fail to realize is when you look at innovative companies, there's another side of the coin. You know, there's tolerance of failure, there's intolerance of incompetence. I mean, you talked about Amazon before. They're tough on people. As and they set a very high bar. All really innovative companies do. People talk about Google doesn't fire people. Getting a job at Google is next to impossible. They set such a high bar on getting into an organization like that. So they set really it's okay to fail if you're trying something new that hasn't been thought of before and you're working your best at it. It's not okay to to do bad, to do sloppy design or fail because you didn't talk to a manager in another department who had the answer. That they don't tolerate. There's a lot of discipline in these organizations. There's collaboration. There's huge accountability. There's a lot of accountability, individual accountability. You know, they don't make decisions through consensus. They drive things through. Leaders are responsible. There's, you know, psychological safety is great, but it, it, they recognize it's all about candor. They, these are incredibly candid environments. And sometimes people don't like this stuff. You know, candor is great when you're telling me what a fantastic job I'm doing. It's great for you to tell me that, It's and it's great for me to hear that. But let's face it, that's not always the appropriate discussion. Sometimes the reality is different. And what I point out is that these innovative cultures, the hard part, it's there's this, I call it the ice cream part of it all, that we all love the ice cream part. We all want the tolerance for failure, et cetera. But there's the kale chip side, which tastes less good. You need both to be innovative. The hard part is, this is the essence of the hard part. It's getting the balance between these two. And in organizations where they, they go down the path, here's the mistake. They say, we're going to be innovative culture. We have to have all these tolerance for failure, et cetera, et cetera. And then the first time they stop a program or the first time somebody who does something who's really incompetent gets fired, people go, aha, see, they don't tolerate failure and they get cynical. And people are not understanding the balance. I think innovative cultures are really tough on people. They're not necessarily the most pleasant places to be. And I think as an organization, and as a leader, you, your job is to make sure the organization is prepared for this. It's not a walk in the park, okay? It's more like climbing Mount Everest. The view's great when you get there, but there's hell to pay along the way. I find that when I've spent a lot of time inside innovative cultures, people say they love it. They kind of love the outcome, but it's tough on people. And I, I have to say, I'm not sure I've come up with an alternative way in which it's less tough. It's emotionally tough. They're high stress. And you have to motivate people, I think, by the mission. We're trying to do something really important here. I spend a lot of time in healthcare. We're trying to save patients' lives. 
and people will can deal with it. I think that's a hard message. I think it's a hard message. I think we want to tell people, and the tendency is we want to tell them, look, it's all about foosball tables and beer blasts on Friday. And, and then people are, they just get cynical right away. And then there's people in the organization, that's crazy. You're going to lose control. You know, we need to be more disciplined. The answer is you, you need both. You need both. And that's the hard part for managers is they have to be balancing both parts of it. Yeah. See, I was teeing you up for that. We'll conclude with you reference Eisenhower. And I thought the story that you told us, it was actually a very compelling one where, you know, Eisenhower never confused kind of voice with vote. He, he knew that he had to listen to uh, a wide range of people in order to make sure that he was making the right decision. But the reason why he had the incentive to listen to as many people as possible is because, you know, it was ultimately he was the one that was making the decision. And it reminds me of the Jeff Bezos's disagree, but commit. We need to make a decision and it's not going to be a democratic one. But if, if the leaders don't listen to a wide enough range of opinions, then they're ultimately going to wind up making making bad decisions. Exactly. I mean, it's this, I use the Eisenhower example to illustrate how some of these elements of culture come together. So it's about account, the power of accountability. So on the eve of the invasion of Normandy, Eisenhower knows that he's accountable. He's got accountable in the eyes of history for what happens. And he's about to send over half a million folks into battle and put their, and, and the balance of the war is hanging, right? He knows that if it fails, it's a big problem. I don't think anybody could feel any more personal accountability Three weeks before, when he, he's laying out the battle plan to the top 100 or so allied commanders, and he starts out the meeting by saying, look, I want to hear, I, he basically, this is a quote about, I will basically, he says, I won't tolerate anybody who won't criticize the report. We're here to get a better plan. That's all. Candor, you demand candor as a leader. When your neck's on the line, you want, I want to hear it all. I want to know if I'm messing up because I want to make a better decision. And as leaders, if you can kind of get it around, look, I'm not perfect. I want to get a better decision. The only way I get a better decision is you got to be frank with me. You got to square with me and forget the rank, forget that I'm the highest ranked one here. That's what you have to do. And that's the power of accountability. And I think it relates back to the example you gave before as the leader has to listen. You have to get a lot of your, and, and, you, and you have to create an environment where people will tell them the truth. But then at the end of the day, they got to make the call. And when they know they're making the call and they know they're accountable for the call, I think it drives a powerful set of incentives for them to demand candor. They just don't have time. It's too risky for them to be, for people not to be candid. Well, these are all great insights. I hope the leaders of large organizations or the aspiring leaders of large organizations can check out the book, Creative Construction, synthesizes a lot of the insights that Gary's been developing over the years. Check it out. Thank you so much, Gary. See you again soon. And you can buy the book. On, we're talking about Amazon. You can buy it on Amazon. And if people, if people read it, then they should send me their comments on it. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Greg, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Thank you.